I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton, today I'm with Stephen Kinnock, who's the Labour MP for Aberavon. Usually, Stephen, on these occasions, I ask the person that I'm talking to to give a bit of their background and their roots, but I think most people will be aware who your father is. <laughs> yes, I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but I thought it would be interesting to, uh, to ask you about your, your childhood, because I noticed that you were actually born on the first day of the 1970s. That's right. Um, and that would have been a few months before your dad was elected as an MP for the first time. Yes. Uh, so I guess that your childhood was a period when politics was really everything, um, so far as your parents were concerned. How did that influence you? It's funny how politics played itself out in my family, because it was never really what you'd describe as politics with a small p. There was very little in terms of who's up, who's down, uh, who's manoeuvring against whom, all the kind of stuff you might get used to reading about in the newspapers. Dad uh, never really brought any of that home. What was always much stronger was, what's the right thing to do? So what are the right values to have? What are the right things to believe in? Uh, What is injustice? What is fairness? Uh, what is it that your grandparents fought for? You know, my my grandfather, unfortunately, my, on my father's side, my dad's dad was a was a coal miner and died when I was very young, and that was their politics, the politics of my grandfather on my mother's side, who was a railway signalman. What they their lives and their values and their beliefs came directly to me through my mother and father. And, but they, of course, weren't in representative politics in any way, but they were deeply political and deeply moral people with a very strong set of values. So I, it was never that we would sit around the breakfast table uh, going through whatever bit of gossip there might be on the front pages. It was much more the big issues of um, how, what kind of person do you want to be and what does it mean to be in public service and what does it mean to be signed up to a cause that's bigger than yourself and I think that while you were you were born in Tredica that's right and that would have been presumably at a time when your dad was working for the WEA was it yes educational association before you became an MP yes Um, and then I think once you became an MP uh, you went to school in did you go to school in Ealing yeah, so we lived in Tredega until I was uh, five or six, and my sister was uh, three or four. And it, I think mum and dad were finding it really difficult uh, to keep family life in a good place because he, of course, was down in Westminster uh, Monday to Thursday, and then he'd, he'd drive up and would have constituency engagements. But it was a big chunk of the week where mum was at home just with Rachel and I, and I think they found it really hard, so they took the the decision. It was a real wrench. It was really tough for them to leave Wales, but to, to move to London. And we moved to Kingston uh, initially, and I went to primary school in Kingston until I was 11. Uh, and then we moved to Ealing. So my teenage years were in Ealing, 12 to 18. I was in the local comp, 
Drayton Manor High School. And, um, Which my mother attended, by the way. Did she really? She did, that's, yes. God, that's a small world. <laughs> it is, yeah. That's amazing. Lot, longer before you, of course. But, oh, uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, did you grow up in Ealing then? Or? Uh, well, yeah, I actually was um, born in Greenford. Um, ah. And uh, I went to school in Hammersmith. And oh, right. what, what had happened was that my dad is originally from Pembrokeshire. Uh-huh. Uh, and then he did his national service in the Welsh Guards after the war met my mother, and then they stayed in London. So um, there's always been family in Wales, but, yeah. uh, but I was brought up in uh, in West London, not too far from where you so were. You're a bit of a London Welshman then, like me. One I, I, I always describe myself as a, as a London Welshman. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, we, we, even though when we moved to London, of course, but then Dad still had lots of constituency stuff. So more or less every weekend, my childhood, I remember packing the car and getting on the M4 and driving up. And then Mum would usually come with us, would often do some of the constituency stuff with him. So I'd be with my auntie Dor and Uncle Cliff. Um, Uncle Cliff always had the horse racing on. And uh, and Auntie Dor was always there, and that was that was in just outside uh, Tredega. So yeah, I mean, I I we we were up and down to Wales. I would say three weekends a month. Um, but yeah, the main home base had become London by that stage, Kingston, and then Ealing. Yeah. What in those early years was your perception of Wales? It was very much Auntie Dor's front room. Uh, Uncle Cliff with the with the racing on um, the the community there being something that Dad was absolutely embedded into and everybody knew him you know and uh, and obviously as as time went on he became an increasingly high profile MP um, a lot of good friends there were also members of the Bedwesley constituency Labour Party it's now Isloin more or less, but uh, back then it was the Bedwesley CLP, and um, his agent, Barry Moore, was a really close family friend, and, and Barry's wife, Doreen, we spent a lot of time with them. Um, there was a fantastic family, the Serralis family, that we spent a lot of time with, and because they, they had kids our age, so my memories really are of hanging out uh, with with uh, Matthew Serralis, who was my best mate in the neighbourhood at the time, um, running around, it really enjoying the way that you could get off the leash there more than you could in London uh, as a as a small lad growing up, and um, and just remembering the community and the way in which Dad was so ingrained there, um, and of course, I mean, I I have very vague memories of his parents because they both died uh, when I was young but there was a big family you know I mean his, and his his uh, his father was one of seven so there were lots of aunts and uncles around as well uh, many of whom had stayed uh, in the area some had, had moved away um, but we used to see uh, the aunts and uncles a lot of the time as well so there's this I think you remember from your childhood the visuals and the uh, and the and the smell of things, you know, and it, and the different uh, the different front rooms of the different aunts and uncles who all lived on the classic terraced housing, uh, and very happy memories, happy memories of of being 
part of a community that was so different to the London community. And we, you know, we lived on a, a street in suburban Kingston, and there were some very nice people on the street, and we got to know some of the neighbours. But you know, it always felt much more atomized and individualized in in London uh, than it did in in South Wales. And I always remember when I got in that car to drive up the M4 with Mum and Dad and Rachel, it was it really was like going to a different world. And it still feels like that. I remember when your uh, dad was um, a, a youngish uh, MP in the early part of his career, he was perceived as, as a left-winger, of mm. course. Um, and then, I suppose, towards the end of the 1970s was when there was a big debate in Wales about whether there should be a National Assembly. And he was very much on the side of those who didn't want there to be a National Assembly at mm. that time. And I think he would have come in for quite a bit of... Um, antagonism from those who wanted there to be an assembly and then of course when he became the leader of the Labour Party he uh, actually went through uh, and this would have been at the time when you were a teenager Stephen um, quite a lot of um, quite unpleasant vilification uh, partly within the Labour Party because he was trying to reform it after 1983, when he became the leader, and of course there was this drive against um, the militant tendency, which was infiltrating the party, and um, uh, he very much took the view that it was necessary to rid the party of these people who yeah. were Trotskyists. And then, of course, from the other side of the political perspective, as he, as the leader of the opposition, was challenging Margaret Thatcher, he came in for a lot of um, very... Uh, nasty uh, criticism from the conservative press. Mm. To what extent were you aware of that at the time and what sort of impact did it have on him and on the family? I think the the fork in the road was when he became leader of the party because it's a it's a it's a qualitative leap from being where well, he was shadow secretary of state for education of course so that you know a pretty high profile politician clearly a rising star of the party but um to to go from that to being leader that was the category uh, shift and and i was 13 at the time that he got elected so it is a bit tough when you're a sort of spotty 13 year old uh, with already quite high levels of self-consciousness and then suddenly your father is catapulted into the public eye and and he suddenly was on you know, the, the uh, opening credits of Spitting Image every Sunday evening, um, falling over on the beach. And uh, that certainly had a big impact on the family because you suddenly see, your, you know, you know him as your dad and you know what he's really like as a person, but then suddenly this persona develops and, and then the, the vilification in the media uh, was really, really nasty. Um, I think, it, uh, yeah, his position on devolution... Um, obviously made him a number of enemies and then his position on uh, rooting out the militant tendency made a number of enemies as well but you know you you can't be a leader without making enemies Um, you know as Niren Bevan famously said if you stand in the middle of the road you'll get run over Um, but if you take a position uh, you will of course make friends and make enemies but that's much better than just trying to equivocate and please everybody. And that's just not something that my 
dad ever did and and I think that's absolutely right I think it's very important that you have your position and your point of view and your principles and and people can either vote for you or they can't um, and and that I think when you speak to most people whether they're particularly actively engaged in politics or not they will say well we pay our politicians to have opinions. We pay our politicians to take a position and to lead us and to take a view. And we will have, when we need to, we'll have the robust debate about whether it's the right or, or the wrong course of action, but it far better than just some sort of uh, wishy-washy fudge in the middle that um, tries, tries to please everybody. If that's what you're into, then... You can go into politics if you like, but you you know it's not really what about it's not what real leadership is about, and and I think that's what Dad always was. He was he was a natural leader, and um, he had his he was passionate, and he had his position, and he had his principles, and he would fight for those, and he would fight his corner uh, very very effectively, and was a winner all the way through until. 1992, uh, when he, um, of course, he didn't win the 1987 uh, general election, but um, was a massive leap forward uh, for Labour at a time where we were recovering from the the worst election defeat uh, uh, that you could imagine in in 1983. So he was always on the upward swing, and he was always um, uh, very strong and courageous person with strong opinions and um it took him all you know, almost to to the to the gates of uh, number 10 downing street and in the end of course he built the platform uh which led directly to the huge labor win in 1997 if 1992 had gone differently and of course at the time um there was something of an expectation that he was going to win and there was of course that Sheffield rally, wasn't there, where he was introducing members of the Shadow Cabinet as if they were going to be Cabinet members under him as the Prime Minister. And uh, there are those who say that that had an impact on the election. I'm not sure whether that was the case or not. Mm. But if he had won, what do you think he would have brought to the UK that he was unable to do because he he didn't win that second uh, election as leader and, um, and, uh, and resigned? So I think the... One of the things uh, that Dad and I share, we, we definitely don't agree on everything, but um, we are out-and-out out Keynesians in our economic outlook. So there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that a Keynesian economic policy based on borrowing to invest, to stimulate the economy, to boost our public services, to strengthen the fabric of the nation... Uh, it's not only smart politics uh, because it reunites, uh, it can reunite a, what is a deeply divided country, but it's also smart economics because it generates the well-paid jobs, which generate generates the taxes for the exchequer, uh, and, re, and and balances the books. And I think what he would have brought if he had uh, won in '92 is an unashamedly Keynesian. Um, approach to economic policy, which would not have done so many of the things that the the Blair Brown governments did once they stopped the silliness of adhering to the to Kenneth Clark's uh, 
uh, economic targets uh, and 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 did actually start to invest. The fundamental problem is they didn't invest and then stand out up proudly on the rooftops and shout about it and say, "You have sure start because you have a social democratic democratic socialist Labour government. You have." better roads and hospitals and schools because we are a Labour government and that's what we believe in. It's almost like they did it by stealth and were almost ashamed of uh, stimulating the economy and doing the right thing politically. And that, of course, opened the door to the uh, wrong-headed, self-defeating, neoliberal Uh, economic policy that came thereafter and and the sort of bizarre Tory addiction to austerity. So I think what he would have done is he would have, he would never have allowed the political debate to be defined by austerity. He would have, uh, he would have created a completely different political landscape where people see the benefits of an industrial policy, where they see the benefits of investment. And in essence, protected our manufacturing base, um, invested in our skills, and avoided so many of the deep divisions and the sense of so many communities being left behind by by globalisation, which I ultimately were the underlying causes of the Brexit vote, of course. So I think he would have completely changed the political weather if he had won in 1992. Going back to your own political development, uh, Stephen, at what stage did you join the Labour Party? When I was 15 years old, in 1985. And you've yeah. been a member ever since? I have indeed, yes. Yeah. However, you didn't follow the normal route for somebody who becomes a politician, or one of the very normal routes um, that um, young people do, where they, uh, they they perhaps study politics at university, and mm. then they go on to work for an MP, and then uh, eventually uh, they just go straight into politics. You took a rather different route, didn't you? Why, why was that? So, um, a number of reasons. I, I think I've always felt it was very important for our, for our parliament to be diverse. And diverse means not just in terms of uh, your ethnic origins or your gender, but also in terms of what kind of life experiences have you had and, and social class as well. But life experience. And, um, you know, I, I think it's probably right that we've got certain people who've gone right through that system that you just mentioned, you know, the, with doing politics at university and then perhaps becoming a special advisor and then standing for a seat. And But I also think we desperately need people in Parliament who've been out there and worked internationally and done a really diverse range uh, of things. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was quite struck by the fact, obviously Russia's been in the news a lot recently, I mean, as far as I know, I'm the only one of 650 MPs who's ever lived and worked in Russia. And, you know, that does strike me as a bit shocking because we've got 650 people there who are kind of in the cockpit of our nation, guiding uh, public policy, guiding our strategy in terms of the way we engage with the world. And yet there's only one person in the entire parliament who's ever spent any real time in Russia, which is one of the critical and most important players on the global scene now as we speak. So I think there there was always a a part of it which was just an objective view that you need people in Parliament who've done a range of different things. I think the international thing for me was always, I always felt the world was 
a pretty small place, always very interested in learning uh, languages, which is what I did at university, and then applying those languages and using them. So I had a, a sort of personal passion for getting out and, and seeing the world and being very fortunate in, in that I've ended up living and working in a number of uh, different countries. And I, I think there's also... I knew from, I would say, my mid-twenties that I had the the vocation, I had the calling. I, I Every time I opened a newspaper from my mid-twenties onwards, whenever I put the news on, whenever I listened to a, a debate, I, I felt that I wanted to be a part of that, that, I, that politics was always the, 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 the way in which I felt that you could make the biggest difference in, uh, in terms of trying to make the world a better place. Um, but I knew that because of my name and my heritage, uh, if I had just sort of swanned from university straight into some sort of uh, political career, then of course you were just the career politician and people would have, they, they would have simply looked at my name and made up their minds on that basis because you're dealing with a guy who's in his 20s. Whereas somebody who's lived and worked in five five or six different countries, done a range of different things, carved out his own niche, if you like, uh, my, my hope was always and still is that people then are able to look at me for who I am and what I've done uh, rather than just because of who my dad was. In the process, of course, you uh, ended up uh, marrying someone who was a career yeah. politician who yeah. became the Prime Minister of Denmark. Yeah. Um, when you uh, met, uh, did you think for one minute that that would be the outcome? God, no. Uh, absolutely not. No, we, we met when I was uh, uh, 22, 23 years old and, and Hilla was 25, 26. And um, if she had told me when we met, look, well, my long-term plan is to become the leader of the Danish Social Democrats, I think I would have said, right, I'll, I'll get my coat. Uh, <laughs> so I've been there, bought the T-shirt, been around that block. Um, so yeah, ab- absolutely incredible, really, the way that it all um, panned out. And she, we, I'm obviously interested in politics because we were both studying politics. After Cambridge, I went to uh, the College of Europe in Bruges, and we were both in. There's, there was a law stream, an economic stream, and a, a politics stream. We were both on the politics stream, so clearly an interest there but uh, I I had no idea at that time and I don't think she did either that she was um, thinking of standing for office um, but yeah I mean it, it's bizarre isn't it really what life throws at you and what are the chances what are the chances that somebody who's the son of a the leader of a, a British Labour Party ended up getting married to the leader of the, someone who became the leader of the Danish Social Democrats but of course my relationship with Hella was so much more than just um, the job that she chose to do, the job that I chose to do, who my dad happened to be. Uh, you know, we've got two fantastic uh, daughters together, and uh, who are just wonderful people, and uh, and we built our lives on 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 the, around that really. Um, but I'm I'm incredibly proud of what she achieved. You know, she became the first. Uh, female leader of the Danish Social Democrats, Denmark's first ever uh, prime minister. Uh, woman prime minister. Well, well, sorry, excuse me. Denmark's first ever woman prime minister. And um, I'm incredibly proud of everything that she's achieved.
Of course, there are those um, cynics, and there are people um, who have um, written for right-wing newspapers, perhaps, who have sought to build up this image of the Kinnocks as some kind of clan um, who have um, profited greatly from the European Union. Um, uh, how do you react to that? I've never really understood that criticism because my parents and my wife have dedicated their entire lives to public service. So um, all the way through, for them, it was about a public service ethos. It was about a choice that you wanted to do a job that served the public. They could have chosen to you know, go and be, I don't know, whatever it might be, consultants or bankers or <laughs> whatever it might be. And, and they, they chose not to do that. They chose to try to make a difference and uh, do that through public service. And when you make that choice, there are then a whole range of different jobs that you can do. And each one of those jobs comes with a salary, and like any other job. Uh, I don't know whether people think that when you work in public service you're supposed to do so for free. I'm sure that if that were possible we'd be more than happy to do so, but you do have things like a mortgage to pay and food to put on the table and, and all the other costs that, uh, that life generates. So I, I've never understood. I, I simply don't understand what that obsession is because every job in public service comes with a contract and a salary and that is the going rate for the job that you do um, and I would say that people who have extraordinary qualities and extraordinary talents like my mum and dad have they, they secured those jobs through the um, through absolutely clear and fair and transparent processes, whether it's at the ballot box or whether it's through uh, a nomination process or whatever it might be. And they were the best people for the job. So it's, uh, it's bizarre. It seemed, and, and I also, you know, I, I was quite struck by um, the stories about BBC salaries. And I think there's a, one of the DJs uh, for Radio 1, hosts the Radio 1 um, morning show he's making two million pounds a year um, of licensed payers money so where, where where do you where do you draw the line what who decides whether somebody should be paid two million pounds of public money or a hundred thousand pounds of public money or whatever you know whatever the prime minister's salary is at, at this time I mean it, it it's one of those questions which I think would will probably be ruminating over for many many years to come but for me, uh, if somebody dedicates their life to public service uh, and gets the job that they should get because of the talents and hard work that they have, that, that, then I think that's fair enough. You mentioned uh, that uh, you're perhaps the only Member of Parliament who's worked in Russia. And of course, you were head of the British Council uh, uh, office in St. Petersburg. That's right. Yeah. Um, now... Um, uh, I've heard people say um, that, uh, oh, you know, look at Stephen Kelly, he was the head of the office in um, St. Petersburg at the time when his dad was the chair of the British Council. 
now uh, you know obviously suggesting that there was some sort of nepotism involved I mean is that in any sense true well the great thing about that story is it's actually my dad who followed in my footsteps <laughs> so I joined the British Council in 1996 when uh, dad was still a European Commissioner um, and it was when he finished at the European Commission, I remember uh, Jack Straw, who was the Foreign Secretary at the time, saying, oh, what are you thinking of doing and what about being a chairman of the British Council? And uh, I obviously got to hear about that and I said, absolutely no way over my dead body is that going to happen because I was, I'd, have really, I'd already been working at the Council then, I think, for five or six years. And uh, so Dad said, oh, no, I won't. And then, but then, of course, the... The, uh, the headhunters for the job approached him and um, then certain pressure was put on the, the, the director general of the British Council at the time. I think that, that position is now called chief executive, but he was very keen to have dad on board. So I got the phone call saying, oh, you know, Stephen, we totally understand your problems with this, but you've got to think of the greater good of the British Council. So I sort of had to get out of the way and then it and then and that's what happened. So, yeah, that was a. That was one of those weird uh, coincidences as well, which certainly isn't how I would have wanted to write it or plan it. But uh, the joke in the family then is, of course, that you know it was, it was uh, nepotism based on me pulling a few strings to get Dad the job, uh, even in spite of the fact that, in fact, it was the last thing that I wanted. And I, I think he felt pretty awkward about it as well. But... Uh, um, the British Council is also a, a, a wonderful organisation that that uh, that creates opportunity for young people all over the world, builds build bridges between the UK and and other countries. And I think uh, Dad did feel that it would it was a, a great opportunity for him to take the council from strength to strength. And in in the end, I ended up agreeing with that. And we had to think about the long term future and sustainability of the organisation, not just my own personal deep misgivings about him getting that job. And of course uh, when you were head of the British Council in St Petersburg it got a bit rocky didn't it because I seem to recall you got got arrested didn't you? I didn't actually get arrested so there's a I mean it's an incredible story really I'll try and uh, boil it down to the the bare bones. Um, The bilateral relationship between Russia and the UK had already gone into a meltdown, really going back from, to the time where we gave political asylum to Boris Berezovsky, who was one of the number one oligarchs in Russia, but had become public enemy number one for Putin, ended up getting asylum in the UK. And from that point on, I think Putin identified the British Council as a soft target that could be used in the uh, kind of low-level um, diplomatic warfare that was going on between Russia and the UK. So we started having incredibly invasive tax inspections, fire inspections, health and safety inspections, you name it. My office was in St. Petersburg getting closed down all the time. And it was, there was a sort of constant campaign of harassment. And then came the murder of Alexander Litvinenko. And then it all went, I mean, up a, a few notches, I mean, a serious number of notches. And uh, there were expulsions. Um, we expelled four Russian diplomats from London. They expelled four uh, of our people. Um, and we got a letter shortly after that saying the British Council in St. Petersburg is an illegal organisation, has to be shut down, in spite of the fact we'd, exist, we'd been there since 1994. Um, and this was 2007. Um, and it was all about just 
playing the game. Uh, and after much back and forth, they, they this was in um, autumn of 07, they said, you must shut down by the 1st of January 2008. Much back and forth over the in- next couple of months, uh, uh, and we took the decision to refuse to close. Uh, we felt that closing down would have somehow been an admission of guilt when we'd done absolutely nothing wrong and we were providing an important service to to the people of St. Petersburg. Um, and so about four or five days after we'd reopened the office in January, I remember this very clearly, I had about 25 Russians working for me and my team and we, I was out in the open plan office chatting with one of them and every single mobile phone in the office rang except mine. And they, the 25 team all picked up and each one of them had been allocated a, an FSB agent to tell them that they were working for an illegal organisation and that they needed to come in to the FSB for an interview that afternoon. So they went in and I, I accompanied them. I, I, of course, didn't didn't go into the FSB myself. They weren't interviewing me. I, um, and I had diplomatic status. Um, and that was when we knew we had to shut the office down because there were also knocks on the door in the middle of the night had been going then that happened that night and 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 um so david miliband obviously the next day had to go in and and announce that we were shutting the office in st petersburg but that night after the interviews he was foreign secretary exactly after though that day of uh, that afternoon of them being taken in for their interrogations um i drove home from FSB to my flat in St. Petersburg and when I got there there was a, a poli- Russian police car waiting outside and as I parked the car up outside they came over and started waving a breathalyzer test at me and said you've got to uh, take this you were driving in an extremely erratic manner all in Russian and um, we saw you jump a red light and drive the wrong way up a one-way street you know you, know, you name it any traffic offense that you could and it was I mean obviously a complete pack of lies and I refused to take the test. I took my diplomatic immunity. So then there was a kind of standoff, and uh, I had to sit in the car for 45 minutes waiting for the Consul General to come down. And um, in that time, then uh, another car drew up, and these plainclothes guys got out, who basically just sort of hired FSB thugs as far as I could see, and started knocking on the window and trying to get me to come out, which I refused to do. And then one of them produced a camera, a handheld camera, and started filming me in the car and then did like this mock-up interview where they pretended that they'd been standing on the corner of Nevsky Prospect, the main drag in St. Petersburg, and that they'd seen me jump this red light and all this kind of crazy stuff. I continued to refuse to get out of the car. Eventually, the, I mean, that was the worst 45 minutes of my life, I think. The consul general turned up, and then we kind of just, he kind of just bundled me from the car into my flat, and there was a bit of a scuffle in the street, and the police were waving the breathalyzer. And for some reason, somebody in, uh, in the foreign office press team or something translated that as that I'd been arrested um, but that didn't happen at all it was just a kind of standoff in in the street outside my flat in St Petersburg but it was a, a, a deeply unpleasant experience. Was that the time when you left the British Council? No I um so I left Russia shortly after that even though I was never expelled and bizarrely enough when I when I went to work when I, after I'd left the council I went to work for the World Economic Forum and Russia was part of my uh, area that I was managing and one of the first jobs I had was to go to the Kremlin to talk to Putin's people about him coming to Davos. <laughs> so I was straight into the lion's den. 
Um, How did you find them? Fine. You know, with the Russians, it's not really personal. It's just business. You know, and um, they... I was part of an organisation in the British Council, which was something they were going to use as a political football to give Britain a kicking. World Economic Forum was something they needed because they loved the idea of, you know, Russia and the Russian government engaging in, in Davos. And so then you get, you know, the door is open. So it's, uh, it, it, it shows that there are how they operate and that it's just a, it's a kind of ruthless machine which is based on just doing whatever they need to do. It's not really a personal issue. I, fi- I finished in St. Petersburg and, and then went for a year to Sierra Leone. I was acting director of the British Council in Sierra Leone uh, in, until 2009. And then when, from there I went to the World Economic Forum in Geneva. I was in, in, in Geneva from uh, 2009 to 2012. So at what stage did you decide now is the time to go for Parliament? So 11, 12. So I, I had decided that I, you know, I wanted to get a good... Um, a good sort of 10, 12 years under my belt before really going for it. And and, uh, and so I went to, um, I, once I joined the World Economic Forum, I was already thinking about how to get back to the UK and, and really get into British politics. And that's what I did in 2012 and came back and worked for a consulting company in London in, in 2012, uh, but moved to Port Albert in 2014 Um and and uh, that was a 100% focused on on winning the selection to become the candidate for Aberavon. Because the winning of the selection, in a way, was a far bigger challenge than actually winning the election, wasn't it? Because you had um, well, Jeremy Miles was your rival, who's now the council general in the Welsh government, and mm. he's a very impressive uh, mm. um, politician. Mm. Was it a clean fight? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Jeremy is an absolutely outstanding uh, politician and is doing a fantastic job as the assembly member for Neath and uh, and in his new role. Um, and I'll be absolutely frank with you, Martin. I didn't think I had a cat's chance in hell of winning that selection. I came here to show how hard I was ready to work and to do as well as I possibly could. Uh, and to just do what I'd been burning to do for many, many years, uh, but had held myself back for all sorts of reasons. And so it was. I, I threw myself into it with a feeling of, well, you've got nothing to lose, boy. Uh, just go for it. And 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 finally being able to say the things that I'd been wanting to say for so long, but hadn't been working for political organisations, so couldn't do it finally had the, the chance to write and think and, and express myself in, in ways and, and to engage with people and, and also amazing to, to come back to my, my South Walian roots and so much of that, that time with the aunties and uncles in South Wales over the years had made me actually, I, I, I never at any stage felt that I had to think in a different way or express myself in a different way it was all in there you know it was and that that was an amazing time for me amazing experience and it uh, but I've never worked so hard I think I lost eight kilos um by just skipping lunch all the time driving around knocking on doors speaking to I think at the time we had about 360 uh members of the CLP and in that three-month period I met with 
or spoke on the phone, in some cases just on the phone with every single one of them. And I have never drunk so much tea in my life. I think I was on about three litres of tea a day by the, uh, by the end of it. And I'm sure Jeremy would tell you the same thing. He worked uh, very hard for it as well. Um, and I was never really sure which way it would go. I felt that I was picking up some support, but uh, I, I, I just never expected to win it at all. And, um, and when the, you know, the votes were counted, and of course it was the narrowest possible margin that you could imagine uh, that I won it by, um, I, nobody was more surprised in that room than I was. I remember at the time uh, being contacted by quite a number of Danish journalists who yeah. came over uh, because in Denmark, obviously, your wife was a prime minister yeah. and there was a lot of interest in what her husband was uh, was doing. Was he going to have a political career of his own? And um, uh, I don't think that they really understood what Port Talbot was like, but some of them actually came over. And I remember speaking to one who perhaps rather diplomatically said to me, um, oh, I have been to Port Talbot. It is not the place for the Danish Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. <laughs> As if it were, wasn't appropriate in some sort of way. <laughs> but of course... It's a bizarre comment. A bizarre comment. Mm. But of course, Port Talbot, in terms of the Welsh economy, is immensely important, isn't it, in terms of Tata Steelworks, which we have here. And that, and the, the survival of it, and um, uh, in, in investment in it, has been one of your major preoccupations as a constituency MP, hasn't it, Stephen? It absolutely has, and it's it's a tough battle because the steel industry is an incredibly competitive global industry. There's too much steel in the world. Uh, the Chinese, in particular, are producing far too much of it, and that's having a very um, that's exerting a lot of downward pressure on prices, and that's made it very difficult for. Uh, the steelworks here. Uh, I think we've also we're really cl fighting. Uh, we're climbing uphill because of energy costs. I mean, we pay almost twice as much per kilowatt hour for our energy uh, here in the UK uh, than, than the Dutch and the Germans do. Chinese are dumping their steel. Um, there's been an absolute failure on procurement in this country to have a proper procurement policy in place, which actually um, ensures that. We get value for money by uh, maximising the amount of British steel that's going into projects. Everything from what you know, the Ministry of Defence procuring a new fleet of frigates to building roads, bridges, and railways. Uh, so we've had to really fight on all fronts to get the right policy environment in place, and it, that's still a, a work in progress. But of course, things really came to a head. Um, uh, back in the uh, Easter of 2016, uh, when I flew out to Mumbai, you know, w with with my with my colleagues from Community Union, when we sat down with the board uh, of uh, Tata Steel, it, it looked really bad. Uh, you know, they they there had been uh, year after year of of lot of of it being a loss making enterprise, and um, Tata was beginning to run out of patience uh, and we had to fight really hard over that 24 hours that we were out there and I think the fact that we were there and and underlining the huge importance of the industry to the community here the huge importance to the supply chain you know three three and a half thousand jobs 
in the Potalbert Steelworks, but there's a, you know, there's forty thousand through the supply chain. Um, I think that that did, uh, it did work in terms of getting Tata to change tack, and then of course it was down to the professionalism and dedication of the workforce to turn the business around, and eventually Tata discontinued the the plan to sell it, to sell the business, and and we are in a much better place now uh, than we were. Uh, back in 2016 but we're definitely not out of the woods yet there's massive questions about the joint venture with ThyssenKrupp big questions about we need to see the investment in relining the blast furnace we need to see the investment coming through on the capital galvanizing plant which is an incredibly important part of the business the off-grid power generator so we are definitely not out of the woods yet but the potential is there they make the best steel that money can buy in that works and uh, there's so much potential for them to continue innovating and, and going up the value chain. But we really do need to see support from the government. And, and Welsh uh, or steel MPs from across the UK have re- raised the issue of steel more than 700 times in Parliament uh, since the crisis. And we still feel like we're banging our head on a brick wall. You didn't support Jeremy Corbyn for the uh, leadership, uh, Stephen, and I think... You were quite pessimistic about the prospects for Labour in the 2017 general election. Uh, What do you think it was that, as it were, confounded all expectations so far as the performance of the party was concerned at that time? I think that the 2017 election was an election like no other we've ever seen, where uh, the governing party went into the short campaign with a lead of around 20 points in all of the opinion polls um, but then ran the most incompetent and inept campaign in living memory they tried to create a personality cult around somebody that doesn't have a personality Uh, they tried to bring out quite new and radical change policies uh, such as the so-called dementia tax without having done any framing or explanation of the policy or why they were bringing it forward. They tried to tell the British people that it was all about strong and stable government, which just looked to the British people like a power grab. And and, and the British people just don't go for that. They don't like the arrogance of just trying to steamroller the opposition out of the way. And I think it offended people's democratic principles. So there was uh, this... There were lots of, if you like, push factors which helped us to push ourselves into a much stronger position because um, Theresa May and her team made such a hash of that whole campaign. Um, And then I think there was an amazing sort of team labour thing going on where Jeremy did a great job of going out and doing the rallies and he turned up to the TV debates and he delivered on that basis and then on the ground in every single seat across the country we were fighting like our lives depended on it because when you go into a campaign 20 points behind in the opinion polls it it spurs people to action it really does right across the country and I think the level of engagement door knocking fighting for every single vote um, really really helped so I think Labour MPs candidates and activists combined with Jeremy 
doing the rallies and the speeches, combined with the most incompetent and inept conservative campaign in, in living memory, um, all, all came together and, and created a kind of perfect storm. Um, and it was remarkable to see the turnaround. And that, and that really only happened in the last two or three weeks of the campaign. Does it surprise you that um, today the uh, lead that Labour has in the opinion polls uh, appears to have evaporated and ought it not to be in a much stronger position than it is at the moment and what could be done to uh, make it stronger uh, in order to give a realistic chance of winning the next election? I think that the economic policy that we put forward in the manifesto was, and that's the other element that I should have mentioned in, in my previous answer, the manifesto I think played a very prominent role in terms of showing that there, there is a real alternative. We, we began this interview talking about the need for Keynesian economics and in in a funny sort of way I think we finally got there it's something that I think would have happened back in 1992 if if dad had won um you know and, and we we've got there now we've got into a space Jeremy has created a space where people can actually talk in positive terms about investment in positive terms about stimulating the economy in positive terms about how some of our uh, utilities would be far better off uh, in, under public sector management than being managed by some private equity firm that's registered in the Cayman Islands. So that, I think, it, we're absolutely on the right track there and we need more of that. I think that the, there is a challenge for us around what I would call our world view. And, and I think that this is a debate that has existed for a very long time in the Labour Party. Well, I think there is uh, a part of the Labour Party um, that believes that NATO is about warmongering, that the European Union is about the excesses of market capitalism, uh, that there are various conspiracies that are running the world. Um, and those party people in the party who who have those beliefs are absolutely entitled to those beliefs does that include jeremy corbyn well I, I don't know i think if you look at you know jeremy has been very clear in the 30 years of his time as as an mp that he's he's taken a particular position on nato he's taken a particular position on the european union um he's taken a particular view on um, what are the driving forces that that drive our geopolitics? You know, what what is the what is the real role of Moscow in all of this, of Washington, all of the, of Tel Aviv, in all of this? How does it all work? How does it all hang together? And and there are just very differently held views on that. And I think yes, Jeremy has always had, and and fair play to him, he uh, he, he has always questioned the wisdom, the so-called received wisdom of the West. Right? He, does, he just doesn't buy it. And I think that there's often a lot in that. If I'd been a member of parliament at the time of the Iraq war, I would not have voted for it. I voted against action in Syria when I was. 
after I'd become an MP in, in uh, 2015. 2015. But there is also a very strong tradition in our party of the tradition of Atlee and Bevin and, you know, patriotic internationalism, which is NATO has actually been a force for good. It's kept the peace. The European Union certainly has faults, but has also delivered a significant rise in terms of uh, economic growth uh, and and trade because of the single market. It's also done a huge amount of good in terms of in, investing in the countries of Central and Eastern Europe and helping them to make a transition to democracy and a regulated market economy. Uh, and and, a, and, a, and it isn't a view which is driven by conspiracies, really. It's a view which is driven much more by, well, the West is definitely not perfect and have made some terrible, terrible mistakes. But not, but it, it's not all about warmongering and neo-imperialism. It, it is actually about people, uh, politicians through the generations who have tried to do the right thing haven't always succeeded. But the basic structures that were put in place after the Second World War uh, the basic principles and objectives of the European Union. They are about delivering peace and prosperity and things that are right for us as social democrats to believe in and, and partnership. And let's not forget on the back of our every single Labour Party membership card, it says through the strength of our collective endeavour. And that means working together with other countries, with other allies and partners, and knowing who your allies and partners are. So I think that there's a that that for me is the it we we need more of the the radical Keynesian policies which is what we so desperately need to change the whole way in which our economy works and the desperate levels of inequality that exist particularly between uh, regions we're the most unequal country in the OECD in terms of the gap between London and the southeast and the rest of the country we need more of that but what we also need more of I think is more clarity on on what our world view is and what Britain's place in the world is and particularly in a post-Brexit environment it's difficult to think of anything that's more important than that at the present time and I and I do I do think that I think the reason that we haven't built on our as well as we should have on our fantastic election success back in June is because I think there are people in the country who who aren't quite clear where we stand on that very important issue. There's also a lack of clarity, isn't there, about Labour's stance on Brexit? Well, um, I, I've become the sort of uh, Norway bore. Uh, I'm sure, pretty sure that's what I'm known as now in the Parliamentary Labour Party. I, I've been saying pretty much since the autumn of 2016 that we have to accept and respect the referendum result. Nobody wants a neverendum. Nobody wants to go through all of that again. Uh, uh, but it means then um, being absolutely clear that we need uh, a type of Brexit which uh, protects the British economy, protects the jobs and livelihoods of the people that we're elected to represent, um, and but also delivers us as much as possible of the t- on the take-back control agenda and I absolutely I campaign passionately for remain but I absolutely understand the reasons that people voted to leave and we've touched on many of those in this conversation so you know I I, I think 
I, I think it would have been beneficial for us to have at some point in late 2016 or early 2017 at the latest to have said, well, in fact, the European Economic Area, Norway-based model is the foundation that we should have put in place for what we want to see as the future relationship. And I think if we had done that, we could have even made that the transition deal. We could have actually gone, we could have cut uncertainty to the lowest possible levels by committing at an early stage to a European economic area-based model of Brexit. Now, a lot of people say, oh, well, it doesn't, it doesn't solve the sovereignty problem because you, in essence, you go from being a rule maker to a rule taker. Well, I think that's not strictly true. Um, you're not subject to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. Um, there's no common agricultural policy or common fisheries policy in the EEA. The European Economic Areas countries have a right of reserve on any piece of EU legislation coming through, and it has to be voted on by the national parliament if they take that right of reserve. Um, there are many ways in which uh, European Economic Area countries influence the shaping of legislation, both through the EU institutions, working groups, ex expert groups, and through the agencies where they have associate status. So I have always felt that you know, one of the whilst I'm passionately pro-European, I've always felt that the EU made a number of mistakes in taking too much of a one-size-fits-all approach. And perhaps um, Brexit is an opportunity for us to look to build a new kind of associate status uh, alongside the other EEA uh, countries. But let's face it, the EU is not a monolithic block in itself. There's, there's a huge difference between the Eurozone countries and the countries that want to become members of the Eurozone and the countries that will never join the Eurozone. There's serious distance being opened up now between many of the Central and Eastern European countries and Brussels on a range of issues. So, you know, and, and I think if you look at President Macron's speech to the Sorbonne back in uh, December, he actually talked, I think, in quite exciting ways about creating a sort of multi-tier Europe where you have associate countries and then core countries and inner core countries. I think that's probably the right way to go. The EU needs to learn to be more flexible and more decentralised in the way that it does things. And, and we, we, should be, we, we should have been talking in positive terms about that model um, from a far earlier stage. And, and the government, of course, should have been as well. It, instead of that, they left a vacuum and into that vacuum. I mean, I've, I'm on the Brexit Select Committee. I've been out to meet Monsieur Barnier uh, a few times now. And, and what he says every time is, well, because the British government never told us what they actually wanted, they only ever told us what they didn't want, which is they didn't want single market, didn't want customs union, didn't want ECJ jurisdiction, then we've had to basically cobble something together which we think fits with the red lines. You know, that's no way to run a negotiation. You've got to be on the front foot coming forward with proposals, setting the agenda, building for a new future, not just constantly on the back foot reacting to what the person on the other side of the table is, is, is giving to you. And yet there are those who argue very strongly that if you look at the economic modelling of the various um, ways of doing Brexit, uh, all of them are inferior uh, from a prosperity point of view so far as the UK is concerned to what we've got at the moment and they go on to argue that the uh, continuing revelations about the uh, 
role of um, Cambridge Analytica, for example, in uh, the referendum campaign, coupled with the uh, clearly misleading messages that were put out by the Leave campaign at that time, together with the fact that if you look at it from a demographic point of view, younger people who will live with the consequences of Brexit are predominantly in favour of remaining in the EU. Shouldn't we be in a position where we're saying, let's try again and have a referendum on the final negotiated deal? I I just don't really uh, buy into that. I think, for me, the driving purpose of being in politics is is about unifying. It's about bringing people together. It's about um, recognising the situation that you're in and building for a new and unified future. Our country has never been, you could argue, more divided, certainly not since the Second World War. Young versus old, uh, city versus town, graduates versus non-graduates. So many divisions. I mean, and, and Brexit didn't create those divisions, but it gave them voice. It threw them into sharp relief. And if we have another referendum, how is that going to help in terms of reuniting our deeply divided country. Uh, and, and I think there's, if you, if you, I'm sure there's you know, 10, 10% of the electorate at each edge, the, the diehard Remainers and the leave at any cost, um, people who just would leave tomorrow if we, if we could with no deal. But that leaves 80%, I think, of people who went to the ballot box thinking, well, probably on balance I've, 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 I buy into the Leave arguments or I buy into the Remain arguments. But they, they, want to see, um, they want to see us get on with it. The, the, one of the things I find on the doorstep in, in, in Potolbert, in Aberavon, is people say to me, look, we're sick and tired of all this fighting about Brexit. We, your job now is to get on with it. I voted Remain, but I accept the result, and the last thing I want is to try and unpick it all. And and what would happen then if there was a narrow Remain vote? Well, do we really think the other side would shut up? Would it then become best of three? There's such a risk of a never-endum, you know. And, and the, other, the other challenge that we have is that the reality is, you know, that the government is not in a million years going to propose another referendum. We'll have the um, the vote in the meaningful vote in October. The only scenario in which it could potentially come to pass is if the government falls and there's a general election and uh, well, another party stands on a, on a manifesto platform of having another referendum. But by that stage, you're already pretty close to Christmas at least. And we have to leave the EU on the 29th of March 2019. So I think you'd potentially be provoking a constitutional crisis as well. So for me, it's it's just not clear how that would actually work in practice. But I also don't think it's the right thing to do in principle. And I accept, I accept that even the Norway model, by judging by the, the forecasting uh, that the government has has done, even though it didn't want us to see it, we have seen it. It it would look on that basis that we would take a hit, but I think if we manage it properly and we stay closely connected to the single market uh, and to the customs union and solving the Northern Irish problem as well is a a huge issue, then I think we can minimise the economic damage 
that comes from Brexit and we can ultimately get to a position where we can actually resolve the Europe issue and get back to governing and delivering on the things that people actually need to see. Better schools, better hospitals, no, less of a queue in the GP, dealing with immigration in a, an effective and constructive way. These are the things that people... I mean, this is the huge challenge that we have with Brexit is the opportunity cost. That you know, Whitehall has been completely uh, absorbed by this now for certainly since the referendum, if not before. Uh, and, and that is a huge opportunity cost for the country. So I, I think for a whole range of reasons we need to be very clear and hard-headed now about the type of Brexit that we have to secure. But I, I will, you know, it's absolutely clear as well that the, that the Canada-based deal that the, we're going to end up with by default because the government has failed to set out a clear position is about as much use as a chocolate teapot because it doesn't include services and it doesn't solve the Northern Irish border issue. So I, I really do not think that that's something that we could vote for in October. Now, clearly, Stephen, you want to make a major contribution as a politician. You wouldn't have gone into it otherwise. Can you envisage a, a situation where you would be a minister in a Corbyn administration? Look, I think... Um, there's the there's domestic economic policy and how to uh, s protect our NHS and build public services and reunite the the country in terms of investing in infrastructure and getting more equality uh, back into the fabric of our country and on all of those issues I I genuinely don't think you could put a cigarette paper between me any other member of the Parliamentary Labour Party, including Jeremy and anyone else that you'd care to mention in the Shadow Cabinet. Um, but I, I do think that we... You know, I'm very clear about the tradition that I come from, and, it, and it's the tradition of Clement Attlee and Ernest Bevan. It's the tradition of those who have mixed their principle with pragmatism and have understood what are the real limitations of Britain's role in the world, but what are the real opportunities, um, and who have decided a very long time ago that socialism in one country uh, is a pipe dream, and we need 21st century answers to some of those big questions about, you know, the, the, the nation-state in our country has been under assault by global forces, uh, global finance, rootless capital, rootless corporations undermining what the nation state can actually do and what national government can do. So we have to work in partnership with our allies. We have to be clear about our values and how it's completely unacceptable for another state to carry out an, a nerve agent-based attack uh, on the streets of our country. Uh, we have to be absolutely clear uh, about what is acceptable in terms of this appalling issue of anti-Semitism that we've that somehow our, our, the Labour Party has has fallen into, and for me, those, those issues that we need clarity on, on those issues, and and clearly, uh, if you are, it, it would it would be it's a tremendous honour to serve uh, on our front bench, but you have to be able to do so 
and look yourself in the mirror and say I'm I am that that there is no doubt in my mind that we are clear on some of these you're never going to be clear on every single detail but the the point with some of these issues you know these these are fundamental uh in terms of understanding Britain's uh, place in the world so you 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 do you do need to because clearly on the front bench you're part of collective responsibility so um I think that our next party conference is going to be incredibly important in terms of clarifying some of these issues. I'm certainly looking forward to having a robust debate about it. Um, and I do think that people, you know, I, I, do, I do think and I certainly hope that this will continue that the, the leadership is listening. Um, I also truly hope that we don't go down a road of navel-gazing and get absorbed into discussions about deselections and reselections and how to uh, you know manage the machinery of the party uh, let's let's just tap back into the spirit that we had going into the 2017 election where we we were a, a great team and uh, i think if we can do that and we can make it clear to people what how we see britain's place in the world uh, then then i think there's no there's nothing no reason that we can't win and win big at the next general election. It sounds to me from that answer, it was a rather long way of saying you can't envisage yourself as a Corbyn minister, Stephen. No, I, I, I couldn't... It, it, I mean, it, the problem is answering that question. It always feels a bit like you're being presumptuous and uh, you... I mean, it's, it, look, Martin, it's not going to happen. I mean, you're... you're <laughs> It's it's not going to happen, um, but I suppose it's important to talk about the principles of what what the situation needs to be in order for anyone. I think any member of parliament who's invited to serve on the front bench has to know that they're comfortable with doing that before they say yes. Don't just say yes so that you can say, "Oh, great, I've got to stand at the dispatch box today." Uh, or I got to do something which was about personal advancement. Say If you're invited to do that, say yes for the right reasons. Uh, and that's why I gave you that answer, because it's not relevant to me personally, because it's not going to happen. Um, but I think it, it's an it's important to understand what the principles are of when you, if you're signing up to collective responsibility, you definitely need to be doing so for the right reasons. Stephen Killick, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.